words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, God, our rock and our redeemer. Now, one advantage of preaching the lectionary is that you actually get to preach on some of the greatest hits in uh, the Christian tradition. Uh, I'm not normally a lectionary preacher, but our esteemed uh, minister of music um, convinced me that I should start trying it out and spread my wings and try something different, so I'm trying to. Uh, Normally, when you choose your own text, you want to avoid all of the obvious texts. So it's actually fun that for the first time, I get to preach on this section of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's called justice. You do something wrong, you get punished. You get punished proportionately to what you did wrong. Justice, straightforward, easy. Not much to argue there. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. When I was uh, in middle school and high school, I went to a school that was combined both middle school and high school. My mother would make lunch for me every morning for all of us three kids. Now, my mother was someone who wasn't big into household chores. Uh, When I was about six, she taught us how to do the washing machine because she really didn't like washing. So from the age of six onward, when I, as soon as I could reach those buttons on the machine, I was separating my colors and my whites. <laughs> but when it came to making lunches in the morning, she loved doing it because it gave her an opportunity to see all of us every single morning and to feel that a part of her was going in our day and that when we sat there for the lunch table, we would open up something that she had lovingly made. Well, when I was in eighth grade... I was uh, sitting down at my lunch table, and one of my classmates, I was at a small class, it was only 42 in a class, and one of my classmates came up and uh, took uh, part of my lunch. This guy wasn't, he was smaller than I was, it wasn't like he was trying to be a bully, uh, but he loved needling me, and so he took a part of my lunch. Now, I had just been reading the Gospel of Matthew, and I had just been reading about turning the other cheek, so I said, well, would you like my wheat thins too? And so he said, yes, I would. Thank you. (laughs) Now, this carried on uh, every single day. He would come over, and he would look over my lunch, and he would take what he wanted. And I, trying to be a good Christian, turned the other cheek, said, okay, you know, know, go for it. Uh, Now, now, my, my classmates were, you know, not happy with this and kept saying, John, why do you let him do this? I said, well, it's the, it's what Jesus wants me to do. It's the moral thing to do. Uh, and so I would go ask, I, I went to my mother and I said, Mom, can you pack a little bigger lunch? <laughs> and after about two months of this, no, no joke, it was at least two months, maybe more, finally one of my French teachers was walking by the table uh, and he saw this guy just go over and just grab a part of my lunch. And the French teacher was like, what are you doing? And the, guy, and the kid was like, well, I'm just taking John's lunch. And the French teacher was like, sorry, it doesn't work that way. And justice was restored. What do you think about turning the other cheek? It's easy when you're talking about things like uh, some wheat thins in a small Ziploc bag 
It's a little more difficult when you're talking about something like bodily harm, let's say. You always turn the other cheek then. What about uh, trying to scale this up? Do you think you could scale up Jesus' statements? Make it something that uh, resolves in, revolves in communities or nations? What would that look like? Is this really realistic, Jesus? If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Here is an ethic of complete non-caring for material goods. Don't care about your possessions. Someone wants something, say, here, take the rest of it. Totally fine. This actually has a lot of parallels in other religious traditions. In ancient Greece, Socrates, for instance, was intentionally poor. He didn't have any possessions because it gave him freedom. If you don't have anything, if you don't have anything to take care of, you're free to do what you want with your time. And he rather would spend his time thinking about philosophical issues and discussing things than worrying about any kind of material possessions. He had barely any, and he was quite content with that. I brought with me uh, some of my trusty texts from other religious traditions. The Bhagavad Gita, a sacred text in Hinduism. This man of harmony surrenders the reward of his work and thus attains final peace. The man of disharmony, urged by desire, is attached to his reward and remains in bondage. Burn money, you're attached to that reward that you get, you remain in bondage. But as long as you don't care what happens to it, man of harmony who finds peace. What about the Dhammapada? This is a work of the Buddha. What does the Buddha says? Uh, Therefore, do not turn anything into something longed for, for then it's dreadful to lose. Without longing or dislike, no bond exists. Kind of attractive, I have to say. Spiritual freedom by not having to worry about things. Being able to be footloose and fancy free. You know? Oh, a job in the morning? I don't need to go to that. There's a certain freedom, or also in terms of generosity, to be able to actually give away to whoever wants it and really not care. There's something attractive about that. Ready to give up your health care? Or your house, or your food, or your clothes, or your car? And here's... What if you have kids and family to be responsible for? The shocking thing is... These texts actually, like the Bhagavad Gita and, and the Dhammapada are explicit that if you have family, that's an attachment. You shouldn't care for them. Kind of shocking. But that's how seriously they take this value of detachment. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than the Gentiles? All right, what are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What makes an enemy for you? I don't use these terms very often, but surely you have some of them somewhere. Who are those people that are like your enemies? They just get under your skin and you just want to wring their necks. For me, it's people who twist around facts. I'm a very rational person. I like engaging in debate and discussion. But when we're not working from the same facts or admitting that those facts are there, I get very, very frustrated. Uh, more so. I, I, can, I can even check the anger that rises up within me. Um, one example recently, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Austin for this Senate hearing on uh, immigration and immigration enforcement, enforcement against sanctuary cities. And one thing that came up again and again in the testimonies is that all of the statistics, all of the statistics that we have show that undocumented immigrants actually commit fewer crimes than people who are native-born citizens. And yet, you know, people are getting out talking about, oh, well, this is full, you know, every undocumented person is a, uh, is a violent person. That's just patently not true. Now, we can talk about enforcement against violent crimes. We can talk about a lot of things. But if you're trying to make your case based on the fact that undocumented immigrants are disproportionately violent, that's actually not a true, that's actually not a true statement. I wish people would stop making it. <laughs> There are other kind of things that, you know, they're not true statements, and they, they frustrate me. When people twist around history, as someone who loves history, that's particularly frustrating because history is nuanced. History is difficult. History has a lot of layers to it. If you take history seriously, you realize that when people put forth very simplistic things about history, they're usually wrong. But that doesn't stop people from doing it and basing whole sorts of arguments on it. And it makes my blood rise, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not happy. But then, I think there's a special degree of hatred that's reserved for those who betray us. Betrayal, I think, has the unique capacity to elicit true anger. Um, when I was in college, some of my friends introduced me to the game Diplomacy. Has anyone here played Diplomacy? So Diplomacy is a game like Risk. Uh, it takes place, it's, it's this, the setting is just before the outbreak of World War I, and you get to choose one of the major powers. Now, one of the things they do is they take out any element of risk, uh, of chance. So when you attack your neighbors, you only win if you have two countries attacking one, or two sort of sections of your map attacking one. That's the only way you can take over another country. There's no rolling of dice or anything like that. Uh, and so the only way you can do it is if you form alliances with other people on the table. And the only way you win is if you strategically break your alliances at different times. And I remember playing this game... And one of my really close friends, like, at a really key point, just, like, betrays me. And, and, and I was just so incensed. I actually had to stand up from the board and walk away. I haven't played the game since. <laughs> it got me that angry. <laughs> As a side note for the historical geek of me, uh, the game Diplomacy was actually one that Joe Kennedy had the, his sons play regularly. Um, and that was supposedly their favorite game. I'll just leave that out there. And just... <laughs> When I was working at Memorial Church at Harvard, uh, the chief administrative officer and development director um, was someone that uh, I, I worked with, you know, collegially. And I remember one day we were standing on the steps of the church, and he remarked offhand, he said, um, you know, because we were talking about the future of the church. 
my boss, Peter Gomes, was getting ready to retire, so we were discussing future things. He said, well, one thing in the future is we, we've got to make sure that the uh, administrative assistants in the church go down to a nine-month salary rather than 12-month. Because over the summer, we don't have as much activity, and so we shouldn't pay them over the summer. I sat there and looked at him and I said, well, why is that? He's like, well, you know, it's just, it makes sense that way. That's what we're trying to do across the university. I'm like, but the church has plenty of money. These people don't make very much money. They make one-third what you make. And you're going to take away a quarter of their salary? And he was, there was like this, there was no qualms there. He's like, yeah, no, that's, this is what the future's going to hold. My, my internal monologue, I wonder what consultant being paid $250,000 a year told them that that's the way to, to, to get more money. Anyway, uh, right at the same time, he was trying to uh, orchestrate uh, various changes in staff, particularly one staff member that he didn't get along with. And so uh, I was unfortunately being drawn in as a pawn in this, whole, uh, in this whole thing. And as things started to go from bad to worse and you know, we try to have things be, be peaceful, then it turned out that this guy, this chief administrative officer, had already been accepted to grad school, didn't tell anybody. Just like, oh, by the way, I resigned. It took me a while to try and find love in my heart for uh, this particular individual. Still working on it. Um, love your enemies. Real enemies. And I'm not even talking about if someone did some sort of harm against your family or something really serious. To that level? About ten years ago, I was talking to my father... Um, my father was a lifelong Unitarian, and we would have these very engaged, fun theological debates. Uh, if, if you're wondering where I get my love of theology, it would be from my father. And we were discussing at one point, and I think I might have told the story before, it's a good one. We were, we were talking at one point, and my father uh, said, he's like, you know, John, my, my beliefs are basically the Sermon on the Mount. And he's like, it's remarkable when you compare the Sermon on the Mount to, say, the writings of the Buddha. He had a book that sort of did these parallel passages. You can see all the similarities that are there. You know, it really is just, I think that encapsulates things. And I looked at my father and I said, when was the last time you read the Sermon on the Mount? And so I went and I got my Bible and I started reading the Sermon on the Mount to him. And as I got done, I'm like, dad, most of the time I don't even try to do this. This is not your guiding, this is not your guiding moral philosophy. Should it be? There are other ways of seeing some of these passages. Scholars have spent quite a bit of time on them. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with some of them. Um, Walter Wink, a very famous biblical scholar and theologian, uh, pointed out stuff about this whole turning the other cheek business. Uh, and really he focused on the fact that, there was, that the text in Matthew says right cheek. Because he said, well, uh, you know, if you are a master and you have your slave and you strike your slave, the way, the way you're supposed to strike them is your backhand. That was the way to really hit someone. So if someone strikes you in the right cheek, that's because they're using their, their right-handed person using their backhand to put you in place. Well, when you turn the other cheek, you're turning your left cheek and therefore someone can't strike you with their back of their hand unless they're a lefty. And apparently, according to Wink anyway, if you strike, if you strike that way, you, you, you only strike that way to an equal. So it was like this is a way to actually be resisting uh, an oppressor. Interesting reading on the text. Apparently also with the cloak, you know, again, and outer cloaks were used to sleep in. And if you were actually in a courtroom and someone was actually suing you for your cloak and you took off not only your undergarments but also your outer cloak, well, you'd be naked standing there in the courtroom. 
and that would be that could be seen as an act of resistance. Like, oh, you really want to take that? Well, why don't you just take it all? Now I'm just standing here, naked as the day I was born. <laughs> Similarly, if someone's forcing you to go one mile and then you go the extra mile, you sort of throw them off. It's like here's a sense of resistance that there's this deep resistance in the passage. Other scholars have looked at this last line, this troubling line, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, as your father in heaven is perfect. Perfection here, this this Greek word for perfection is the word that they use in the Greek Old Testament to refer to being blameless before the law. In all likelihood, Matthew is talking about being blameless before the law, not necessarily being morally perfect. But of course, Jesus ups the ante of what the law means here in the passage in Matthew 5. Similarly, there's a parallel passage in Luke that says, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And there's debate about whether or not merciful was actually the original word, and Matthew changed it to perfect. But these things don't remove the problem. These are all very good interpretations. But still, what do we do with them? Other scholars say, this is really about God's law in the end times. This is the way things will be in the end times. Isn't that just a cop-out? I mean, I really do think these things matter. As I'm sure you're aware, Mahatma Gandhi was deeply influenced by this passage. He relied on this passage and cited this passage as the basis for nonviolent resistance that ended up meaning the independence of India and the helping of hundreds of millions of people in need. From this passage... Martin Luther King Jr. was influenced by both Gandhi and Gandhi's interpretation of this passage and this passage too. The civil rights movement was driven by this passage. Do we really want to just dismiss it? Does it really mean nothing? I mean, our society is obsessed with material goods. Isn't there something in this passage for us that we should take seriously? Is it a challenge for us? Loving our enemies. One of my professors at Yale was a guy named Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf's most famous book is called Exclusion and Embrace. Volf was born and raised in Yugoslavia. And he reflected theologically on the problem of reconciliation when you have such a deep-seated hatred after the war that went on in Bosnia. He knew personally people on both sides. He knew people who had been killed. He knew that the, the hatred there went back 500 years plus. And he sat there and spent his entire work saying, is there a way that we can get beyond this? Can our faith help us get beyond this so we can get to a different place? The loving your enemies thing, it actually matters. I mean, someday people in Dallas might actually like people in Houston. <laughs> or Red Sox fans and Yankees fans might actually get along. Martin Luther uh, made a big deal of what he called the law. This would be a classic example of Luther's perception of the law. The law, these commandments of God that say God's eternal rules. These are, these, these are God's sort of commandments for all of us for the way the world should be functioning. Yes, Luther, that makes sense. Luther also said the law has a second purpose. That purpose is to lead us to realize our dependence on God. Because we can't fulfill the law on our own. We have passages like this. When we take these passages seriously, when we ardently strive for them, we realize that we fall short. And not just on these parts of the law, but other parts too. Are we always as generous as we should be to those around us? No. Are we always loving to those around us? Realistically, no. Especially those sitting in the pews next to you. I'm sure you can probably get pretty angry about people near you. Are we always our best selves? No. And that's why we need the grace of God. That's what Luther is saying. 
Part of the purpose of the law is to say that we actually need help and we need forgiveness coming from somewhere. And the message of the gospel is that you are forgiven. This is what you should be doing, but you are still forgiven when you fall short. Luther made a big point of saying that keeping those things in tension is part of the key to the Christian life. Can we hear these admonitions in the Sermon on the Mount and take them seriously? So if we are feeling lethargic, if we are not striving in our own Christian and moral lives, can these be useful guys to say, no, I need to do more? The bar is set high. And that's the point. But if at the same time you are someone who is feeling beaten down, you are feeling like you're constantly falling short, you're in a place where you know you can't do any more, the same gospel message comes to you saying you are still accepted and loved and forgiven. That's the tension there. That's what we're supposed to hold in tension and hold in our hearts. So if you are someone who, leads, who needs a little nudge, I hope this passage helps. If you're someone who needs a bit of grace, I hope you can also realize that you are loved as you are. Because that's the other half of this message that makes us able to live into the commandments to live better lives.